people are dying less of TB, but at the same time, there's actually much more attention is being directed towards eradicating TB. And again, this is why it's really important to recognize the social aspects of the history of medicine, because so much of why people are trying to eradicate and fight TB is because of a fear they have about the links between TB and the poor state of housing, uh, child health, and also the efficiency of the nation. So this idea that, you know, because TB has really, it's a, it's a long lasting disease, right? It can, it, it really does like disable you for a long period and it can take a long time for it to eventually get you essentially. Um, and the idea would be that, you know, as we're these big nation states competing with each other, like Germany and, and France and the USA and the UK, you know, if we have a young population that's riddled with TB now and the effects of TB, they're the soldiers and the workers of the future. So how are we going to compete on a global stage? Hello, I'm Natalie from Genealogy Stories and welcome to Twice Removed, the show where we talk about everything history related. Laura. I'm here today Hi. with Laura Newman, who is a historian of medicine, particularly in the workplace and part of the exciting Addressing Health project. So I'm really excited to talk to you about health, medicine, postal workers, should be a bit of an eclectic mix. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll dive in. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the um, Addressing Health project to start with? Yeah, so the Addressing Health project is a welcome funded project um, funded by the Wellcome Trust. It's going on for three years, so we're just about a year in. And what we're doing is we're really trying to look at the health of the postal workforce as a whole from around the 1850s to around 1908. Is what we have for this period, we have an amazing set of records about um, the health of the postal workforce. So. It was one of the biggest employers in this period. By 1901, it was uh, employed around 167,000 people, one of uh, one in around 20% of whom were women, and from and all across the UK or what was in the UK. So you know, from the smallest fishing village in Aberdeen to you know the big postal sorting offices in London, you know the post office had an extensive range. So it's really great for historians of health to think about you know what the health of uh, the the population was like generally at that time, right? And one of the things that makes the record so unique is it um, really gives us uh, insight into um, morbidity. So morbidity is different from mortality. So historians have traditionally looked a lot at mortality, so what people have died of to get a clue as to, um, you know, what the health of people in the past was like. But the issue with that is, you know, people don't just live life as completely disease uh, condition-free people and they're suddenly dropped dead of like TB or cancer it, when they're 75, right? People live with different kinds of conditions all over, their, all over their lives. So what we can do, for example, is we can look at the pension records of, um, we think it's around around 30,000 pensioners we're, we're aiming to look at, right, from 1858 to 1908. So we can see stuff like how long they were off sick for, um, we can also look at the reasons why they retired, which again might not necessarily be the reasons why they died. And then we can do interesting stuff like thinking about like, okay, so people in Ireland, what were they retiring of that people in England or Wales or Scotland weren't retiring of? And how did that relate to, you know, difference between rural and urban, um, you know, differences in health and differences in age and gender? 
So really it's working with a really fantastic data set to answer some really key questions about the lived experiences of health um, in this period, which is something we're obviously all really excited about. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So a more of a, a holistic look at health rather than necessarily yeah. just what you what you died of, what the, the no, things yeah, you had absolutely. to live with. Um, mm. Yeah, I should think that would be really interesting. I can't wait to see how the project develops. Um, so I know when we were talking um, off camera in, in prep for the interview, you mm. mentioned that um, people might be surprised at how early um, people retired from the post mm. office service. And I just wondered whether you could tell us sort of when, when they retired and, and why it was so early. Yeah, so there were two sort of chief reasons for retiring in this period. So one was through ill health and the other was through age. So that was reaching the age of around 60, uh, later 65 years old. Um, so what we found, and I should mention here, um, because this is a project that has um, been limited to a great extent by COVID, we haven't been able to get into the archives nearly as much as we'd want to. I'm having horrible archive withdrawal symptoms <laughs> at the moment over a year since I've been to an archive it's horrific um so everything we're saying right now is based upon like a small sample so yeah. like our findings might change so um we're actually finding that actually two-thirds of workers um retired from ill health rather than from age and why that's significant is we're th thinking about the pension thinking about the way post office pensions worked is there a non-contributory and also they were based upon your length of service. So it actually benefited you to stay in post, uh, in, in your office for as long as you could, because that would mean you would retire with a better pension. They're also added on benefits like things for good conduct. So, you know, if you retired early, that is quite a good indicator to us that something was, was wrong. Um, so we're finding that the average age of someone who retired from ill health from the post office was around 47 years old. And they served from around 22 to 23 years in the post office on average, so quite a long time. Um, and the interesting thing we're also finding about that is because we're tracing um, uh, them after they retired, so we're looking at um, death certificates for people who retired in census years. That's something I do a lot of on the project, so a lot of um, trying going on free BMD and being like, is this the right Jack Smith? No, <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> Um, and then having to go to Ancestry and look at the census. So yeah, we will find the death certificate for Jack Smith. And obviously that will show when he died and what he died of. So by that, we're able to look at, so if we know Jack Smith uh, retired from the post office due to ill health um, in uh, 1881, and he died in 1885, that means he only got four, four years additional life, right? Um, mm -hmm. On from that. Um, whereas those who retired due to old age actually lived a fair bit longer after that. So we are finding some really interesting patterns, um, you know, um, looking at um, uh, why people retired and also geographically finding, you know, that people in urban centres tended to retire earlier than their rural counterparts. Yeah, well. I find that's really interesting. Um, so. I found that really interesting that they got they, they got a pension actually full stop so because yeah. I, I should imagine that was not well yeah I'd imagine that wasn't common you know that there was that was one of the pluses of being employed on the post office hmm. and did that was that pension in place right from 1850 or was that something that slowly came about so what I can tell you is that um <laughs> what I can tell you about this period is because it was a civil service department 
there was a real reputational risk to the post office if they had people who'd been working for them for 20 years and then you would find out for example that they died in the workhouse impoverished right so the pension was there both to attract people to come to work for them you know to retain them too but it was also it was also you know as a branch of government you know the post office had to be cognizant of these kind of issues as well um other branches of the civil service also had pensions in this period so like the inland revenue and and um teachers too from um the 1870s onwards had pensions as well um and some companies had voluntary um some companies uh, private companies had pensions too um as well and really it's it's, it's all about attracting the workforce, a good workforce to come work for you and making sure they don't drop out of work as yeah. well. That's a, that's a kind of key reasons why pensions were introduced. Um, and just to say as well, um, on our website, we have links to all the talks we've given. Um, um, and one of them is on the history of pensions in the post office by my colleague, Kathleen McElvenna. Oh, brilliant. Um, so just a plug for our website here, addressinghealth.uk, <laughs> uh, um, addressinghealth.org.uk. Um, let me check if that's actually right. Yep, addressinghealth.org.uk, where you can watch some presentations uh, we've given on various topics related to postal history. And uh, Kathleen McElvenna, uh, our fantastic, someone else is on the team who did her PhD on pensions in the post office, um, has really fantastic talks of illustrating their history. That's brilliant. I um, I find that really interesting because I have a postal worker in my family tree. Oh, really? So, yeah. Well, well, he was in a tiny little village called um, Tidenham in Gloucestershire. So yeah. he would have been a rural rural postman, mm. um, essentially. Um, but he actually got sacked um, for stealing out of the letters. Yes. So there's a really great newspaper clipping um, that uh, reports that basically kind of there is now that I'm saying newspapers I'm wondering if it was newspapers or the criminal report that I found one of the two but it basically says that his employer suspected him of um, opening the letters and obviously trying to steal money and things yeah. out of them and um, they asked him to um, turn out his pockets which he did and he had no letters in them and then they said and now can you take off your hat <laughs> and what he'd been doing right. been stuffing the letters into his hat but they kind of describe him as having um, barely any teeth um and mm -hmm. so you kind of get you kind of get this sense of this kind of like bumbling country hick that's um yeah. bless him that's um really struggling really really struggling yeah. for money and has, has resorted to desperate measures and obviously he loses his job and then he spends the rest of his life uh working as a gardener so um oh, yeah so which yeah. obviously would have been um still quite you know labor intensive yeah um, very much so but yeah, and that, that was the end of that. So his, his short postal career. So, but it finding out that he possibly could have had a pension as well, I'd have to check yeah. what date he yeah. was um, arrested, makes that desperation must have been even greater to put that at risk. Yeah, absolutely. And we've done some early work in this area. So we had an undergraduate research fellow at King's College, which is where I and some other people on the team are based, look at how we can look at the idea of postal crime. And that typically refers to people stealing money out of out of letters and you have to think like sometimes when people are sending postal orders of like five pounds and if your yearly wage was something like 40 45 pounds that's that's a lot of money yeah right to just sort of be handed right um and we looked and we were looking at court records uh, at the old bailey so just in london so our source sample was kind of limited 
to think about, you know, what kind, and there was a reference to someone who said that his child was in hospital, right? So there is a degree to which, you know, again, I think like you do with your ancestor, you, you have to sort of imagine that detail about the teeth is really interesting because mm. that, again, is really indicative that, you know, he might not have been able to afford uh, the, the services of a dentist. And then thinking about the temptation that these huge amounts of money pose, yeah. you know, is, is, and the relationship that had to, like, their welfare and their health in general is something I find really interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know they were living in a very small home um, mm. with other people as well. So it, was, it wasn't, you know, it was shared um and that um his wife was working as a laundress so you you start to get that mm. kind of socially economic yeah. picture but yeah it's yeah. really interesting yeah. um so if if he hadn't have pilfered <laughs> through the letters what kind of health issues though might he have looked forward to what kind of um issues led to retirement or earlier retirement yeah so this very much depended on what type of work you did and where so if we're sticking with uh, what was your ancestor's name? I feel like George Davis. So. Okay, if we stick with George, right? So George, as a rural postman, could have expected to retire from a lot of the issues you would, I think, naturally expect associate with with walking really long routes, right? So you would have expected him to maybe retire for orthopedic issues, musculoskeletal conditions, and also feet as well, like bunions, uh, gout. I see quite a lot of as well oh really um yeah also sometimes respiratory conditions as well and then there was this very ubiquitous category of worn out um which appears a lot in the pension records uh the reason why uh someone uh retired so that could have been a euphemism for um old age a lot of the time uh, a kind of premature aging too um so one of the things i'm interested in in the project is historian medicine and um, other people on the project are with this kind of background is thinking about what would what precisely qualified as being worn out because when we're because as a you know historian you see all these conditions and some of them seem very recognizable right like everyone knows what cancer is everyone knows what uh, sciatica is sciatica is another big one when you see worn out that seems really imprecise to our modern eyes that seems mm. really like what's that so part of our job is to reconstruct you know what exactly worn out meant and uh you know if it meant the same thing every single time um so yeah um so they would be retiring from uh yeah musculoskeletal conditions often uh, foot conditions um, but when we move more towards the urban centres and we move towards the people doing indoor work for the post office, so postmen were outdoor workers, indoor workers, the people working the big sorting offices and big uh, like telegraph offices, they were often retiring for very different reasons. Um, they were often retiring um, due to a number of conditions that we have included in under the umbrella of mental health. Okay. Um, which is a bit of a sticky category in this period, um, especially the ways Victorians thought about mental health. So this would have been things like nervous exhaustion, nervous stability, but also like melancholia, you know, so we would probably, again, nervous stability might seem a bit foreign and strange to our ears uh, today. Melancholia, we kind of all vaguely knows, know what that means. Nervous stability um, be like anxiety? 
yes yeah. so the, the, the issue here is it could well have been that the, the victorian doctors had a very interesting understanding of the relationship between the nervous system and the body so it could have meant something to do with the brain because today we often see mental illness and these kind of uh, disorders as originating in the brain whereas victorian doctors sorry this is me going off on a segue no this is brilliant no um, please do <laughs> they they had a, a slightly more they were they they there were there was a lot more debate over to the relationship between the brain and the symptoms of nervous um nervous and mental illness um stuff. so there was a lot of there was a lot of discussion about the role the whole body played in um in in, in mental illness um so when I see the words like nervous stability and nervous exhaustion, I think there's a, there's a there's a degree into which I think that the 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 doctors making those diagnoses is, might diagnoses even might have thought about the idea of the nerves literally being frayed and worn out. So it could have meant even something um, you know about no like just conjecturing here. It could have meant something like you know a, a, a disease of the nervous system that we see today. Um, you know, uh, so the ways in which, you know, today a condition like um, MS uh, would be seen as very distinct from like a mental illness, it would be seen as a mental illness, and the ways in which like epilepsy, for example, today is not thought of as a mental illness. Back in the Victorian period, those boundaries were a lot fuzzier. So, um, yeah, sorry, that was just a little segue. So, no, that's um, really interesting. I find that really fascinating because I, yeah. I know like, I've kind of been aware of... Um, um just through studying English lit um and, and looking at sensational novels and things like that so I've got a little mm. bit of awareness of the concept of hysteria and and mm. like the idea of the a woman's womb being able to wander through her body yeah. causing random yeah. moments of historicalness um, mm. <laughs> but yeah um but I hadn't realized that that relationship with the body and the brain was so fluid if that's the right word it's very uh, it was um it was, yeah, it was, it was very interesting that the boundaries between the brain, the body and, and mental illness were often quite fuzzy and imprecise. And there were lots of just ideas and conjectures and, and hypotheses floating around in this period as well. Um, you know, so it could be, yeah, um, it was it was an interesting time. It's not my area of expertise no. so much the history of mental health treatment. But yeah, it's um, Victorian doctors had some wacky ideas, basically. <laughs> So when you're when you're working on this project and you're reading these um, retirement papers, you're having to kind of play detective to a certain degree and try and work out what what they might have meant by some of these conditions. Or yeah, so the thing to note here is that um, the post office had its own medical service, which was established in 1855, and the role of this service was to provide treatment for post workers if they were earning under a certain amount. Um, they provided free advice to everyone though. So, you know, if you were a very rich postmaster on 150 pounds a year, you could still go to your post office medical officer for advice. Um, sometimes they were full-time postal employees. Sometimes they were doctors who were contracted out. Um, and obviously these guys were often certifying and inspecting people and writing down the reasons why this person was retiring. So the issue here, and again, we've got a PhD student, I should say, who's working on the post office medical service the problem is here is that there's hundreds of doctors onto the employee of the post office, right? I'm not, I think hundreds, maybe dozens. Um, I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure of the numbers, but there are a lot. 
And each one of these doctors had a distinct training. They had, they will have all gone to different medical schools at different times because the culture of medical education in this period was very different. So in Scotland, which had a very, very old tradition of medical education, right? Um, you know, the, so again, when I'm looking at the reasons why Scottish uh, poster workers, their reasons for retirement, I'm having to think, okay, so these are the doctors who probably went to Glasgow and Edinburgh and St Andrews. And so are they coming from a different intellectual background than those down south? right or those in Ireland um, so that's one of the tricky things because the doctors again like the postal pensioners are individuals too they have their own biases they have their own ideas about things so that's that's one of the really tricky issues when you're playing with such large amounts of data like this is you're having to deal not with just a nameless mass this like big thing of like medicine and the medical doctor like that they're, they're individuals with you know their own their own kind of professional opinions and, and things like that so that's often really hard. I think that's really interesting I think that will really interest a lot of family historians as well because we quite often order our ancestors death certificates and then have have to try and work out you know exactly what something might have meant um, yes. and yeah it's worth bearing in mind um, that that might not always be the same thing <laughs> so though no. as in you might hear you know I don't know. I like. I've. I had. I think it was one ancestor I had who had like death by teeth, you know, which is, mm. you know, de decay. You know, I presume would be a abscess on in the mouth yeah. or a decay. Or I've had that a few times, and I, I know other people have had it, and they've, they've had it with abscess or something. So you you kind of get this idea that there's different meanings. Mm. But um, yeah, yeah, I think that's really useful for us yeah. to know. Mm. Um, so what? what kind of um you sort of briefly mentioned mental health and um uh nowadays i think we're much more aware of um mm -hmm. stress and the role that stress can have on our both on our mental health and on our physical health as well did did they have a concept of stress in the kind of victorian yes. edwardian period yeah no they absolutely did um and i think especially in the time we're we're sort of talking about so you have uh, so in around the um, from about the 1860s onwards, the post office goes through a period of intense modernization, right, um, and um, becomes really the big bureaucratic efficient organization we know today. And there are lots of drives towards modernization and, and efficiency. Um, so, <clears throat> and obviously at the time we're also thinking we're having this great communications revolution. So we get. For example, the telegraphs become nationalized in the 1870s. Um, and so you get all the telegraphists uh, moving to, uh, to the post office. So, you know, their workforce expands. So we're getting the growth of telegraphy. We're getting uh, the growth of letters with the introduction of the Penny Black in the 1840s. We're getting also importantly, the expanding borders of the empire. So, and really the post office is the central communications hub and it's linking all these really disparate elements and peoples of the empire together. So what comes with that, and we also get the introduction of the parcel service in the 1880s, I should say as well. So what comes with that is an intensification of work and the pace of work. And so people are working really intense hours a lot of the time. So especially in London, there are often reports of uh, postmen and sorters doing double shifts. So they'd be working sometimes up to 16 hours a day 
the telegraphist will be working up to eight, 10 hours a day as well. And what the medical doctor would have thought at this time, especially, is they would have thought that the repetitive work, repetitive work would be particularly damaging for someone. So um, this idea, uh, so something like doing a, the, a repetitive, um, you know, on the telegraph key or sorting the same parcels again and again and just doing something very monotonous, they thought that was intensely damaging. Um, and there was just a, a kind of more bait, and I'm sure you know this from your time doing English literature, like turn of the century, especially this idea that modern life was just getting too fast for some people. And so you actually get a new kind of neurotic diseases sort of spring up in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And so much of that is tied to the conditions of urban living and the speed at which, you know, people are now living their lives. And really the post office was facilitating that speeding up in a very important way. So, but you know, there were people doing that speeding up, right? There were people there who were making sure, you know, if you posted a letter uh, at this time, it got to the address the next day. If you posted, if you did a telegraph, it got there, a parcel, et cetera. So, you know, they were really, you know, in the, in the um, sort of great incubator of, of modern day stress, right? Uh, having to do this work, connecting all these people. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's probably really easy to forget now because we just like ping an email mm. of actually how reliant, you know, think for thinking from just a business perspective, yeah. but even from a personal perspective of receiving letters from your loved ones, but like literally making businesses go around that ability to communicate was all done by snail mail by hand, yeah. by telegraph. Yeah. So what did they, so how did they kind of treat their workers in terms of stress? Did they, was there a kind of, you know, any sort of occupational health as such? You know, like we would have a somebody come in and check that you're sat, you know, in big corporations, yeah. you'd have somebody come in and check your desk, wouldn't you, and that you sat properly and that kind of thing. You know, yeah. was there a kind of slightly Victorian equivalent or was it very much like, well, this is stressful and that's tough? No, so um, I, I'd say probably somewhere in the middle. So I'd say they had the post office medical service who, um, you know, would, would inspect workers fairly regularly. Uh, to check you know they were doing okay um but it, it's important not to see it as too altruistic right because the post office medical service were there for management to check that people were working efficiently and working well so you know the the, the idea of health is not just this like um in the workplace is not just this kind of benevolent paternalistic employer right it's tied to productivity it's tied to making sure the post office continues to be efficient um so you had post office medical service, um, you know, kind of giving something in the way of occupational health, um, you know, providing treatment for people if they needed it, uh, occasionally providing home visits if you lived within a certain radius, um, and uh, providing uh, advice too. Um, the problem is, is, you know, as much as it has good and as enlightened as that sounds, um, you know, from the end uh, initially, um, you know, when you actually look at what the workers associations and the unions often say is they often say that these post office medical officers are very intrusive and um, they say that you know they're actually a lot of a lot of factors in um particularly offices that um that the post office are very negligent about so <clears throat> they talk a lot about the lack of sufficient uh, lavatory provisions so not enough toilets um 
the the amount of dust that builds up in there um you know the poor ventilation um so yeah so often the workers themselves were actually taking on a, a quite an active role um in occupational health themselves and really agitating for change um themselves so it was it was sort of a mixture of you know both the post office medical service but also i think it's important to recognize the role that workers played too that's really interesting um so um thinking about the actual work itself especially when you were talking about letter sorting and and you know in current times i think we're much more conscious about touching things did, what did they did they have any particular concerns about um i don't know ill ventilation and touching letters and that kind of spread of mm. illness what, what were their kind of thoughts around that yeah so this is actually a really interesting period of post office history and something that before the project i joined the project i wrote quite extensively on um and a very interesting episode in the history of the relationship between the world of medicine and the world of the post office was the growth in pathological specimens that made their way through the postal system. So essentially, um, in this period, we see a real growth in the capacity for diagnosing infectious diseases like TB, like syphilis, like diphtheria, right? So what's happening a lot of the time is that um, patients or doctors are sending samples of spit or blood or urine via the post to big research uh, laboratories and hospitals in London, um, you know, so then they can like write back and be like, we found evidence of TB in this spit, right? Initially, this was actually illegal, but lots of doctors did it anyway. So they had a big hoo-ha, big load of negotiation with the post office management. And eventually they are allowed through with quite fairly strict conditions about how they were packaged. But what happens inevitably is as um, you know, um, this diagnostic testing industry grows, as more and more as it, the tests become cheaper, um, you know, more and more of these specimens are making their way through the post office. But the big issue at the same time is the post office is also getting mechanized. So you can imagine you have a little spit, um, a vial of spit that's been packaged okay, but not super well, is then dropped from a mag elevator and then taken through the post office railway. You then get a sort of lifting it up. Oh no, what's happening? My hands are covered in spit or blood, right? And so there were quite frequent complaints made by the post office unions and workers associations about this saying, you know, we are now at, we are now very much at risk for developing diphtheria or TB or the big one that they were often really worried about was syphilis. Because you can imagine um, syphilis has a lot of moral connotations with it about sexual impropriety. So this idea of like, we could be getting syphilis and you know, someone would think, you know, I was an adulterous man and I, I simply was doing my job. Um, you know, so that was a big thing. And there were often other things as well. So it wasn't just the specimens, uh, pathological specimens. That's quite an interesting little bit of postal history, but more common everyday things that made their way through the post office, right? Like paper. There was um, a lot of debate in this period over whether paper could carry germs. Um, and the post office actually, so the system of disinfecting post and disinfecting uh, parcels actually goes back a, quite a long time, way before um, it was commonly accepted that diseases like cholera or the plague were caused by a germ, right? They would really? disinfect these often a lot of the time. There's actually a really 
interesting history of postal quarantining. Um, yeah. So they would often inject these letters or like treat them with um, like creosote and carbolic. So the same thing that was being used in surgeries at this time, right? And um, they would treat the letters with these. And they were doing this, uh, the post office up to the 1880s, um, specifically because if you're getting stuff that's coming in from the empire, we're having great uh, kind of cholera outbreaks in this period in um, like the Indian subcontinent. And then also later in the um, 18, God, I, I, sorry, I'm huge. I actually am quite bad at dates, but in the late 19th <laughs> century, we get the third plague outbreak in India as well. And that obviously has big ramifications for what you're, what is allowed to come into Britain from these places. Yeah, that was a very long answer to the question, no, but it's also I'm something I'm I've really, written a lot on. So Yeah, I'm, just, I'm really amazed by that because I kind of presumed that certainly sort of in the 1850s to maybe say 1880s that they, they might have still thought of the kind of old miasma theories, but is that kind of well gone by that period? Um, yeah, so miasmas are really interesting. I think sometimes um, when, like with with certain things when we think about what caused disease right or what people thought caused disease I think a lot of the narrative is everyone thinks it was like four humors then miasmas <laughs> and suddenly we get germs in yeah. for with like pasta in the middle of the 19th century in actuality it's like a obviously of all things in history it's a lot more complicated and it everything bleeds together in a much more interesting way um so miasmas are interesting because and germs specifically, because it's, there was always the possibility in medicine of this idea of a contagion that people, of a biological contagion that people couldn't see. So even though they didn't know it was germs, right? People were often alive to the fact that there was probably something that caused the onset of a disease. Uh, miasma could be one of these things, um, but they also allowed for the possibility of another, uh, lots of other different factors too. I've always thought miasma was pretty logical as well, you know, and, and, and actually makes a lot of sense because it's... It does. The idea that, you know, not being around things that smell bad and it, yeah. it being in the air, essentially, you know, to a layman like me who knows nothing about medicine, germs kind of are in the air because <laughs> it kind yeah. of like makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, not that... Well, yeah my asthma this believing is, doctor but you know, yeah. yeah so this is one of the really interesting things is that um I think a lot of the time we tend to see medical practice in the past as like ignorant and we kind of tend to feel that like they believe what um but actually it does like put yourself in their shoes for a moment it does make sense and actually the stuff they were doing was helpful it was beneficial they were installing sewer systems they were cleaning out ditches, which, you know, would have been reservoirs of, of waterborne disease bacteria. They didn't know there were reservoirs of waterborne disease bacteria, um, but still the outcome was the same. The outcome was still effective and beneficial for people's health, even if, you know, the premise was wrong, right? So, yeah. Yeah. so you know, that's, that's a really interesting thing about, you know, the history of medicine, C I think. Certainly cholera, hadn't they? I think, am I right in thinking cholera, they had begun to realize that it was something to do with water because they yeah. have one water pump my really no, no, memory of right. a water pump and all the and and color and snow pump. broad street pump in Thank soho you. yeah in the 1850s yeah. yeah yeah no absolutely yeah so there was a recognition you know that, that water definitely played a role in transmitting disease and also food too you know there's definitely a recognition that um so like food poisoning, for example, there was this idea of uh, poisons that were in certain foods that as foods decayed, they kind of built up poisons. Uh, they were called like potomanes, or I can't pronounce it, 
I can spell it, but I can't say it. Um, you know, and then it's only later in the, the 1880s that we start to get like um, like identification of like the salmonella germs. But before that, you know, people thought there were poisons uh, in the meat that were gradually building up. Um, you know, so even before, I don't know if anyone here is watching um, the the terror, but you know, obviously that is um, it's very good because it's about the Franklin expedition and they had tainted meat that probably some people suggest had botulism in it. Um, okay. You know, um, and this was, sorry, this is a complete digression. No, but go, digressions are great. <laughs> no, it's, it's just, I, I really like the history of food poisoning, like <laughs> it. Um, so, um, you know, that's actually um, a really good example of like, you know, how people were aware just from their sensory environment, from like looking at things and smelling things and inspecting things, that something wasn't quite right. And, and in, a, in a lot yeah. of ways, they're kind of right, aren't they? Because yeah, they, a lot I of mean, times food that goes off is a bacteria wrong. that's growing. So in in a sense, they were right in that this yeah. thing is happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really, I, I'm always amazed that we ever invented um, things like penicillin, that somebody ever thought that this mold on a piece of bread mm. might do something, you know, it's, yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. Mm. Um, so 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 they were concerned about spreading illnesses okay yeah and um I know that you've done a lot of research into TB was that a particular is that because it was a particular fear yeah so the really interesting thing about TB in the 19th century is actually TB rates are going down so TB has um killed more people it's estimated than any other uh, infectious disease um in history um, and it still is a major killer, um, which I think a lot of people don't quite realise. Um, so the interesting thing about TB is rates are going down. So less and less people are dying from it. There's a lot of debate over why this is, um, and I won't go into those, but people are dying less of TB. But at the same time, there's actually much more attention is being directed towards eradicating TB. And again, this is why it's really important to recognise the social aspects of the history of medicine because so much of why people are trying to eradicate and fight TB is because of a fear they have about the links between TB and the poor state of housing, uh, child health, and also the efficiency of the nation. So this idea that, you know, because TB has really, it's a, it's a long lasting disease, right? It can, it, it really does like disable you for a long period and it can take a long time for it to eventually get you essentially. Um, and the idea would be that, you know, as we're these big nation states competing with each other, like Germany and, and France and the USA and the UK, you know, if we have a young population that's riddled with TB now and the effects of TB, they're the soldiers and the workers of the future. So how are we going to compete on a global stage? And this idea that, you know, that, you know, we can do something to eradicate TB in the post office, um, this um, this kind of finds expression, this kind of um, anxiety about TV finds expression through a activist called Charles Garland, who was a telegraphist, um, who in 1903 um, established something called the Post Office Sanatorium Society, uh, which is a friendly society. So it's a worker led society uh, where people contribute a small amount each week. And if they contract TB, then they can get access to sanatorium treatment. Um, and, they, and they actually build their own sanatorium, the Post Office Sanatorium Society in Kent. Um, 
And they're really worried about TB rates. Charles Garland's really worried about TB rates in the post office. He sees it as disproportionately affecting um, telegraphists. So the, again, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, these people who are working indoors and what you know, a lot of people saw as very unhealthy conditions, and they were, right, like for spreading respiratory disease. I mean, there's one thing this pandemic has shown us, it's the importance of like good ventilation for uh, stopping the spread of respiratory conditions. I was going to say, actually, how do you get TB? Um, so How is TB, you know, contracted? Um, so, yeah, the, the interesting thing about TB is because TB can affect pretty much anywhere in your body. It depends slightly, okay. um, but, but mostly it's spread by aerosol, through, so through coughing or okay. sneezing. Um, um, in this period, they thought spitting spread it as well because um, they detected, um, scientists, uh, bacteriologists detected TB um, bacteria and spit. And the idea would be spitting used to be a much more um, ubiquitous behavior than it is now. Um, be as were, while pe- as people spat and then the spit dried up and it became dust, then that dust had TB germs in it. Um, I'm, I'm not a bacteriologist or a disease specialist by like any stretch of the imagination, but I'm pretty sure that is not how you catch TB, <laughs> okay. not a risk. And that's why often you'll see um, like, no spitting signs in old photographs and on old uh, especially railway carriages a thing as well but they actually the post office sanatorium society campaigned to have no spitting signs for up and sorting offices in 1901 um because you know they, they, they talked about the layers of dust that had accrued over the years of like from tuberculous spit um so yeah it's made for aerosol but like if you're um yeah if you're interested in tb and your ancestor there are other ways to catch tb um um, or contract it. So one of the more interesting ones, um, I say say interesting, um, is you can contract tuberculosis from humans, but you can also contract it through um, um, infected milk. So milk that's been so TB is a mammalian disease, right? Um, and cows are often very liable to catching TB, as I'm sure most people are aware. Um, so what would happen a lot in this period is, as you had raw, unpasteurized milk. Um, a lot of these cows milk would be infected with TB so if you drank unpasteurized untreated milk that had TB in it you could contract TB from that and often what you do from that is you contract something called laryngeal TB which is quite a nasty form of TB because it affects your throat because as the milk's going down you know the TB germs are kind of spreading in your throat and children were often particularly liable so it's used to like the more nasty pernicious forms of TB so not just pulmonary they were um, liable to this laryngeal form, but also um, um, oh, what else? Our brain, tubercular meningitis as well. They were particularly liable. To that so yeah, that's how TB spreads. <laughs> I, I, fascinating because um, my um, uh, so my partner was um, his family's all from Belfast, um, mm. and um, as far as I can see certainly sort of in the 1860s they all seemed to die from tuberculosis like on all sides of his family and I know Belfast was a bit of a tuberculosis capital at one point um so I find tuberculosis really quite interesting just and I I, am I right in thinking there was a a bit of a stigma attached to to tuberculosis because yeah it, it was associated with poverty yeah so I think the interesting thing here is it it wasn't necessarily that it was associated with poverty because actually a lot, quite a lot of middle-class well-to-do people caught TB as well. Um, so whilst it was kind of gradually remade as a disease of poverty in the late 19th century, it wasn't just affecting the poor. I think 
what's interesting here, and I think what's interesting from a family history point of view, especially, is so before the TB germ was isolated and identified, perhaps the most popular explanation for TB um, was that um, it was hereditary. So it was this idea that you either caught it directly from a relative, uh, or like inherited it directly from the relative, because don't forget this is a time of Charles Darwin, so people having lots of really interesting ideas about evolution and hereditary, uh, like kind of sciences. Um, but there was this other idea that, that families just had a hereditary predisposition towards TB. Um, and so there was this idea that you had a fam that the whole family was kind of tainted with it, right? And this does this makes like quite a lot of sense. Again, if you're looking at it from an outsider's perspective, like forgetting what we know about germs and TB, you know, a lot of these cases of TB were caused by families who were living in horribly overcrowded conditions, right? So this idea that you had a tubercular family was really popular. And again, lots of doctors continued to believe that hereditary factors were really important in explaining why people got TB. Um, so, and there's actually, I, I think of Ireland again, um, I'm not sure of research elsewhere on this, but actually in the post-war period, so you know, 70 odd years after the TB germ was first identified, lots of people still thought the TB ran in families. They didn't think, you know, the germ played a super important role. Lots of them still thought family was the most important factor. I can and understand people that. Were isolated. Yeah. yeah, I can understand that, especially if it took time to develop. So it could seem like a slowly getting worse, gradual thing. You, you, I think we tend to associate that kind of thing more with hereditary diseases. Um, yeah, so that absolutely. does make a lot of sense. So what if you did contact TB, you mentioned the sanatoriums um, and, the, and the friendly society. What was a sanatorium and what kind of treatment might you get for TB? Right. Yeah. So sanatoria <laughs> first come in the middle of the 19th century. And really, although sanatoria do dispense, not dispense, they do kind of, you know, offer pharmaceutical treatment, uh, sometimes surgical treatment too. Really, the most important thing about sanatoria is this idea of regularity of habit and of exercise and of diet. Right. And it's about and it's also also about the ugh, sorry, it's also about environment. It's about removing the poor urban sorter or postman away from the corrupting effects of the London air. Um, because if we think air quality in cities now is bad, back then it was like truly horrific, right? This idea that we would remove them to somewhere with the fresh regenerative effects of the countryside air. Or if you were very rich, you would go to Switzerland and go high up in the mountains, you know, with beautiful forests. Um, and what you would do is you would either have, there were lots of different treatments, but uh, you would have bed rest, for example. So that was a thing. Um, but in the um, late 19th century, um, and especially at the, um, the post office sanatorium societies, sanatorium in Kent, they had something called graduated labor, which was um, medical exercise, essentially this idea that if you exercise the white blood cells in your body would fight the TB infection, it would be activated by you moving. But when you look at it, like they were asking them to do really intense manual labor with a quite severe respiratory condition. So it'd be like, dig a ditch, walk five miles. Right. And so actually a lot of the time these people were complaining that this is too severe for me. This is too harsh. So that was a treatment that became popular, especially amongst the working class tuberculosis patient 
in the turn of the century because it was seen as you know the natural state of the working class man is to work and so we should restore him to work and that way his body will heal um you know and there were lots of other yeah I know it's so unbelievable as well because you think like surely if 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 a uh, if physical exercise was going to ward you off or cure TB, the people that had already been labouring really hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> miraculously getting better on their own. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you would think so. Um, yeah, there's there a, are lots. Of, yeah, a lot of really interesting social ideas there. I think. Yeah, no, there absolutely are. Um, they, it's very much it's when you read some of the justifications these doctors are putting forward for using exercise and treating TB, it's um yeah um and there are various other things as well like um so if you had tb of the skin uh sunlight sunlight therapy um there, there were lots of, there were some wacky ideas as well so like using gold like injections of gold because gold was found to be effective in laboratory tests in uh killing the tb bacteria um so then doctors just ran with that idea and started injecting people with a derivative of gold um, but with that, people were just getting really sick. They were getting poisoned. So there was a lot of toxicity going on. And then there were other things as well, like quite harsh sounding surgical things you could do to try and get the lungs to rest as well. So yeah, um, but it was only in the 1940s that like an effective antibiotic really emerged for treating TB. Until then, a lot of the symptoms, a lot of the efforts were on managing the disease and preventing it rather than um, you know trying to fight for that hunt for that magic bullet yeah sure sure so you know do you do you know yet whether tb was more prevalent in postal workers as compared to other occupations or is that Mm. is that sort of one of the um hopes for the project to to kind of find out yeah so one of the things yeah so it's definitely something we're going to try and find out because tb is a very good sort of um weather vane right it's very good for 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 sort of looking at the health of a population as a whole so we're still sort of looking um from very provisional stuff i've done so sort of not super scientific or sort of more sort of trailing through the data i'm actually surprised at how little i'm finding tb as a cause of retirement um amongst postal workers that doesn't mean people didn't have tb right because like they could have retired for a different reason um so it doesn't necessarily mean that TB wasn't prevalent in the post office. I just think that um, that um, certain members, certain uh, workers' organisations in the post office, you know, as you want to do when you're trying to like um, to gain attention and gain attention not just from your employers but from like uh, society at large about what you saw as a particularly prevalent problem, is you use quite sensationalist statistics. And, um, you know, so I think Charles Garland says something like 45% of TB clerks, male TB clerks died or retired from TB. Um, So far, our research does not bear that out as as a thing. Um, So yeah, and I guess one of the interesting things is to think about like, you know, were postal workers actually, did they have, were they less affected by TB than the general population, right? Um, if so that tells us something about the various ways in which a regular wage and a pension might actually offer you protection from these infectious diseases that were often associated with like cramped living conditions and a poor diet like TB. 
so how were people allowed to take sick days um what did that look like yeah you're absolutely allowed to take sick days so you could take <clears throat> you had up to six months pay um full pay for six for sick leave and then after that six months of half pay but sometimes this could be extended in like exceptional circumstances the only issue with that is it, this wasn't a time where you could just like today where you couldn't self-certify forever right um so you had to get a doctor to um come say you know this person is actually sick and you would often and you'd have to do it for a doctor who was appointed by the post office or who worked for the post office so there are some cases um so our phd student holly marley recently came across a case of a telegraphist who had typhoid fever and was off for a very long time and the medical officer essentially didn't quite believe him it seems and kept on pushing uh for you know more certification and saying like i don't basically i think doubting that this person was actually sick and there's evidence that you know his family found that like in himself found it very very invasive and unprofessional so even though it's very generous, this has to be qualified with the fact that, you know, you, you do have a very big sort of medical um, surveillance system going on right in the post office. Yeah, um, that's obviously biased. <laughs> yeah, in some cases, probably biased. Yeah. Um, and we're finding that it, workers send us to take around 10 to 20 days off in, uh, in, on average. Um, but what's interesting as well is that um, we're finding that over time workers took more time off. So someone working in the 1860s and 1870s took off less time in the, uh, the worker who was working in the 1890s, for example. And the other interesting thing is about we're also seeing some variations in taking sick leave across the UK. So, um, so for example, um, Two thirds of London workers, um, for example, reported in sick each year, but only a third of Scottish workers. Uh, but at the same time, the Scottish workers tended to take longer periods of time off. And again, these are all the things we're getting these little patterns emerge and these little suggestive things. And we're not quite sure yet about the reasons behind this, but we're finding these interesting little tidbits from the data. And we just need more time and more time in the archives, importantly to kind of understand why these patterns are emerging. I just could be Scots just double hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there might be an important cultural thing there about yeah. work ethics and and cultures of, of, of kind of sick leave and, and stuff. So yeah, we're really interested in finding that out. That will be really, really interesting. Mm. So um, how can people find out, I kind of got two questions. So how can people find out more about um, postal workers generally sure you've got any sort of recommended places or tips yeah so yeah um so if you're interested i guess i'll answer this in two ways so if you're interested in tracing a postal ancestor i would say the first port of call will be the postal museum and archives who have really lovely wonderful archivists who are so helpful um i've been going to those archives for years and yeah they're absolutely my favorite archives um in london and I've been to, sorry, very nerdy. I have favorite archives, but I do. Um, they're absolutely my favorite archives to go to in London and they are incredibly helpful and have great resources on their website. So just Google the Postal Museum archives. You'll find great stuff there. If you found out you had a postal ancestor and you have access to Ancestry, Ancestry have the record set for the post, uh, post office appointment books. They don't cover absolutely everyone. 
but they're really good for um, identifying when your uh, postal ancestor uh, was appointed. And interestingly, and I find this quite fun, is if they were a letter carrier or a postman, uh, for example, you can usually, they'll usually have details for their route. So they'll have like, um, you know, like Hitchin to Luton, right? And what's interesting there is if you're very nerdy, you can go on Google Maps and, and like type in Hitchin to Luton. And this is very unscientific, I should say, because like, but you can see very approximately how much that, how long that route was. So you can get a good sense of how much your ancestor was walking every day, which what? I think is quite even better, you can too. use the National Library of Scotland online where they yes. have the historic maps and you yeah, can absolutely. layer them with the modern maps and then you could get super geeky and see how yes. their, how their how route has yeah, changed. Absolutely. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think in Find My Past as well, they have a declaration of age forms for the civil service. So you might find your ancestor there. Okay. Um, and then in terms of if you're interested in postal history, um, the Postal Museum have a really great website full of, uh, with blogs and stuff. And then obviously I have to do a big shout out for our website here, which is addressinghealth.org.uk. We have blogs, we have uh, presentations and talks, um, you know, on lots of aspects relating, not just the postal history, but the history of medicine, the history of pensions, and even the history of death certificates. We, uh, one, of our, um, one of my colleagues gave a really interesting talk on that. Um, you know, and we're always looking for contributors. So if you want to write about your postal ancestor and what you found out about them, please let us know. Um, uh, our website, our email is addressinghealth at gmail.com. Um, and we're always there. We're also on Twitter. So postal, at Postal Health. And we love chatting. So yeah, um, there's just contact us basically. We're all big nerds and we all love to talk. And um, yeah. There's lots of ways to get in contact with us. And we have a newsletter, I should say. Ask to shout out for the newsletter. Sign Sounds awesome. Website. I've got, um, I'll put all those links in the description below. So you should be able to view them really easily. So don't worry if you're sat there frantically writing. Um, yes. And if people want to find out a bit more about, you know, occupational health in general or medicine in general, um, what can they, have you got any hints, tips? I know you've got a book. I'd love to yes. see the front cover show it off um, it'll be yes. mirrored <laughs> i just um i just published germs of the english workplace circa 1880 to 1945 um i think my publishers want me to do a bit of a shout out so thank you <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so that has some stuff on the post office um it's a bit expensive so i won't be i, I forgive everyone if you don't want to buy the book um but again if you're interested in um anything relating to the history of occupational health in the post office just contact us um, i'm contactable as well i'll put my email down here um, if you want to find out more about um, the history of medicine occupational health um, so again I, I i direct you towards our website i direct you towards the welcome uh, website uh, i direct you towards the london museums of health and medicine website the Science Museum have a fantastic um, um, uh, resource on medicine. They just redeveloped their medicine galleries and they have a fantastic online portal for their digital, uh, for their objects. Um, and also just really, really great bits of really accessible writing about occupational health. And obviously we'll be looking towards developing some resources too. Um, and um, 
particularly, um, you know, um, sorry, my brain's gone dumb. Uh, we'll be looking towards developing some resources too uh, for anyone interested in the history of occupational health. So again, keep your eye on our website if you want to find out more. And as usual, if you're ever ever curious about something, I think something I'd really emphasize is, is um, if you find a, an academic who writes on something you find interesting and you can't access that paper because it's behind a paywall or you want to find out more, I would really suggest um, getting in contact with them. I know it can seem a bit scary because you think, you know, they're these highfalutin professors. But in all honesty, we love talking about our research. We're big nerds. And we're more than happy usually to send you a copy of things and just chat. I mean, we might take a while to get back to you because, you know, of our workload and we're all busy and it's pandemic. But absolutely do get in touch. You know, if you find a historian whose work you find interesting, they'll probably be more than happy to talk to you. Um, you know, so that that's my other tip, really, uh, which is just emailing and, and kind of getting those connections, which is. No, I completely agree. I think Twitter's a brilliant place for meeting other other Absolutely. historians from all different, um, you know, backgrounds and and um, professions. And yeah, um, mm. yeah, you can always follow <laughs> my shameless plug here for my other hat. You can always follow Historians Collaborate, which is at Hist Collab um, yes. on Twitter, and I'll put the link to that in the description as well. So, thank you very much, Laura, for oh, that yes. whirlwind tour. It was really interesting, and uh, I really you. thank you very much for your time. No, thank you so much. I had a really great time talking. Um, thank you so much, Natalie. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this video, don't forget to hit subscribe or visit me at www.genealogystories.co.uk.